It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas, whether we are ready or not. Thank you for taking the time out of a busy holiday season to join us at Dayspring Fellowship as we celebrate the reason we celebrate, Jesus. I'm Chris Voigt, and I lead the pastoral team here at Dayspring. In every season, our team here is committed to helping you grow in your relationship with Jesus. Whether you are here in the room or watching online, live or on demand at some point in the future. Our prayer for this service is that God would meet you in the deepest places of your heart as he fills you with love, joy, peace, and hope in a world that desperately needs more love, joy, peace, and hope. We also pray that you find Dayspring the kind of church that you can call home. We are really more of a family. We're the kind of people who will welcome you with open arms, just as you are. Nobody here has their act completely together, so don't think you need to either. This is a safe place to check out the claims of Jesus. It's a safe place to have doubts and questions about spirituality. We like helping people figure out the next steps on their journey. So if you haven't arrived yet, whatever that means for you, welcome. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church, by checking out our Facebook page, or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your church home, or if you just have questions, let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find study questions by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. And now, let's join our service. on Velma's. I'm from the Fountain of Grace Memorial Church and I wanted to see if I could place a poster in your window. Oh. It's an advertisement for our annual Christmas pageant. If you really want some help, we can do a lot more than just put a poster in the window. Well, all the single ladies, all the single ladies, all the single ladies. A poster in the window is more than enough from you people. More than enough from you people? I think it's just best that you stick a bow on it and shove it onto your living Christmas tree. <laughs> she may be right. What? Well, let's face it, we are not church folk. We'll show that Fountain of Grace Memorial Church. We'll serve up Christmas Velma style, served with a smile. <laughs> For the pepper shakers. Uh, she went back in the storeroom for more decorations. More decorations? There's a fine line between tasteful and just plain techy. Buddy, darling, would you come help me with this, please? Now, Velma, honey, don't you think you've taken this thing a little bit too far? Too far? Yeah. I have only begun to decorate. Now, I admit at first I was just mad at that woman from the Fountain of Grace Memorial Church, but the more I think about it, the more I think I'm on to something. You're on something, all right. I'd say crack. <laughs> no, but I could crack open that file applications there in the back. You know, I think we could use some tinsel right over here. Mm -hmm, that's what I thought. 
Morning, everybody. Hey, everybody, I know. Velma called and said she wanted me here first thing, so here I am. Morning, Henry. Thanks so much for coming in. No problem, sugar. But could you tell me what this is all about? Well, as you know, I have decided to put on a Christmas pageant of our very own right here in the diner. And since our motto is family style, served with a smile, I thought it would be appropriate to focus on the first family of Christmas. <laughs> Wait a minute, Velma. Don't you think with all that is going on right now that the president has too much to do to be in a Christmas pageant? Although it would be kind of sweet to have those two little girls here. For, you know, Christmas is so much more fun with children around. It's the first time we've had children in the White House. Henry, your body may be awake, darling, but your brain has hit the snooze button again. I'm not talking about the president. I'm talking about the first family of Christmas. Mary and Joseph, I have decided to do a nativity scene. I saw a nativity scene on the uh, Travel Channel the other night. There were girls in grass skirts. Not a native scene, buddy, a nativity scene. You know, with the baby Jesus and the Virgin Mary and the three wise men. Like we're gonna be able to find three wise men around here. <laughs> be a sight easier than finding them. Henry! Now you may be old, but I will hurt you. Yes, ma'am. Now this is what I'm thinking. Christmas is about loving each other and accepting each other and all those things that the Fountain of Grace Memorial Church has forgotten. So I thought we'd do it. Well, that's a grand idea, Velma, but uh, what do you need me for? Oh, well, there is that part about Mary riding in on a... Nadine! Henry, I need you to build me a stable and a manger. So, Velma, where exactly do you propose I build this stable? You don't have enough room in here for a hamburger, let alone a whole cow. Well, now, you've got a point. Yeah, what can I do? There's a community center right across the street. I bet they let you use it. <gasps> That's a great idea, Henry. Would you check for me? What about me? Oh, and Nadine, I thought with your fashion sense, you could be in charge of costume. But what about me? Oh, and another thing, Henry. The light on my sign has gone out, and I need it for advertising. But what about me? Come here. Oh, have I gone deaf? No, wait, no, 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 no. I just heard that. <laughs> Buddy, I don't know what we can do with you, but I'm sure we'll think of something. Well, I, I'm, I'm real good with animals and, uh, and stables that they have animals. Now, why didn't I think of that? Oh, because most people think that I'm too stupid to help out. Oh, well, that is just wrong of me. You're a fine young man with a lot to offer, and I am very sorry. <laughs> About what? Never mind, buddy. Uh, Velma, uh, who's gonna play the parts? Well, see, I've been thinking about that. I thought about all of us doing it, but then I thought that'd be just as stuck up as the Fountain of Grace Memorial Church. <laughs> so, I thought we'd get some of our customers, too. Like who? Well, like Johnny and a couple of the other boys from the fire station to play some of the wise men. I get it, because they came from afar. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, and I thought about Bill Robinson oh. for the part of Joseph. Oh, and what a fine-looking Joseph he will be. And Buddy here <laughs> gonna be a shepherd along with Bert and some of the other D.O.T. boys. Now, I'm still uh, waiting for the good Lord to bring my Mary along. We're just gonna have to wait for her. What about the angel? Well, I read the Bible, I mean, for peace sake. <laughs> well, I was getting to that. I thought the angel could be played by Nadine. Oh, so it's a comedy. Henry. Well, I'm sorry, Velma, you know, I, I love Nadine to death, but I can't see her playing an angel. I can't believe you. I'm sorry, Nadine. Henry had no right to say that. No, not Henry, you. What were you thinking? I can't play an angel. I'll be the laughing stock of the entire county. Don't be ridiculous. Now, both you and Henry are wrong. Buddy, what do you think about Nadine being an angel? 
I'll, I'll sure miss her when she's gone, but I don't question the good Lord about such things. Look, Velma, I appreciate the thought and all, but you can't give me one good reason for me to be an angel. The Bible says they're some of God's most beautiful creatures. Oh, well, there is that. No, no, no. Velma, this is a small town. Everybody knows everything about everybody. I can't stand out there in front of the people that know me best and pretend to be an angel. That's the point, darling. Anybody who stands out there will be pretending because none of us are angels. Now look, enough excuses. And besides, teacher says whenever a bell rings, an angel gets her wings. <laughs> You're gonna need a bigger bell. <laughs> Looks like the cast of this upcoming production that's being pulled together at Velma's is including some unlikely and perhaps unskilled characters, would you say? But today, as we explore more of Jesus' lineage, we're going to encounter some unexpected characters ourselves this morning. But before we get into that, let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, this morning, as we approach this Christmas season, as we approach this message of Jesus from your word. God, let us um, be open to what you have to say to us this morning. Let this uh, story involve so many different characters that we would not expect to find in Jesus' family uh, impact us and let it transform us this morning. It's in your heavenly name we pray. Amen. All right, so welcome to part two of our Christmas series called An Unexpected Christmas. When you read the four accounts of Jesus' life in the Bible, which we uh, called the Gospels, you will discover that only two of them feature the birth of Jesus. The Gospel of Luke, which begins with what we consider a more traditional start with the angels alongside Mary and Joseph. And these are the verses that we read to our kids at our Christmas services. But Matthew, however starts with a different approach, what I would consider an unexpected approach. You see, if I was going to tell you about my birth, I would start with all the details. Jonathan Michael Sprouse was born at 4 a.m. on September 28, 1992, weighing in at 5 pounds 4 ounces. He was born to his parents, Larry and Jean Sprouse, in the little town of Hamilton, Montana. But what you would not hear from me, though, is the breakdown of my family history, mostly because we as the Sprouses, we're not very familiar with it. My grandfather was an orphan, and it wasn't until fairly recently that we discovered who his family even was. So I personally am not very uh, familiar with my lineage. But for Matthew, he knew that Jesus was born into a very special family, and so he begins his telling of Jesus' story with a genealogy. And Matthew takes us all the way back to Abraham and traces Jesus' lineage through the generations. And he did this for a few very important reasons. As we discovered a few years back when we studied the book of Matthew together, and even more recently in our fall Bible study, one of Matthew's goals was to show his Jewish readers that Jesus was truly the Messiah, this promised king. And to do that, Matthew had to convince his readers that Jesus was Jewish, like 100% certified Jewish. 
And to be really, really Jewish, you had to be related all the way back to Abraham. But that's not all. To be the Messiah, you not only had to be really, really Jewish, but also from the line of David. And both are evident here in the list of family members that Matthew has compiled. So Matthew begins his Christmas story with a genealogy, but as we discovered last week, Matthew doesn't really follow the rules for a genealogy of this time period. He goes off script pretty often, and it appears that he wants to highlight all sorts of people that are related to Jesus who might be considered a bit odd. He includes two or three women who weren't even Jewish, and a few family members that, let's say, had a a rough history. For example, he pauses at David and Bathsheba to point out that King David is in his family tree, so he's really Jewish, but also, it seems, to highlight the scandal that David got caught up in. And with this in mind, it seems like Matthew kind of went out of his way to highlight some of the more scandalous or R-rated parts of the Bible. He focuses on the characters who had some troublesome moments in their lives. But why... Why would Matthew do this? If it were me writing down the history of Jesus' family, I feel like I would like pick the best moments from their lives to highlight and maybe leave out a few of the worst people on that list, like, like we do on social media or Instagram, right? Only the good stuff gets published. We don't just post the bad stuff of our lives. And I would want to clean up the list to show others that this Jesus really does come from God and is truly God's son. He's perfect. Look at this amazing pedigree he has. I think we'd all want to build a rock-solid case for this Messiah, right? But that's obviously not what happens here in, G- in the genealogy. Not everyone related to Jesus was very divine or righteous or even good. And as it turns out, there are a couple reasons, that explains the first part of this first chapter of Matthew. Since Matthew wrote a gospel, that means it contains the story of the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And if you know anything about our author, you would know that Matthew had issues in his life himself, especially his life as a Jewish tax collector. So you want to highlight the nature and the message that Jesus' lineage tells. Not a story about perfect people, but of messy people. Because not only are the characters in the story, but in fact they are the point of the story. You see, being religious by itself is never a good thing. Religion alone is built on things you do for God. You come here on Sunday morning because the Bible instructs you to, but for some, that's where the experience ends. It's kind of self-centered. I do the thing, and then I reap the reward. My standing with God is based on my self-righteousness that earns me status. And this mindset eventually leads to believing, like, that I hear God more clearly than anyone else. Or I can get my prayers answered from God, and you can't because I've put in the work. Look at me. Here I am. Look at what I've done. Okay, yeah, I think we can all see the issues with that, right? As someone who had grown up with the self-righteous and religious ideal surrounding him, Matthew knew that this idea was not going to work for him. 
working as a tax collector for the Roman Empire as a Jewish man meant that he was essentially charged with robbing his own people. It was common that tax collectors would not only acquire money for the Roman rulers, but also keep some to themselves. Right? Imagine for you, you're walking down your neighborhood towards your home every night uh, after unjustly seizing a part of everybody's income, your neighbor's. You'd best be running, not walking at that point. So Matthew knew, he knew that his, if his standing with God is based on his performance, then he's out. He had no chance of reaping any reward. And the same goes for those in the genealogy. And we're about to dive into one of those stories. But before that, there's, there's one other thing. Some may identify with doing stuff for God and, and leaning on that for their salvation. But others may identify with Matthew. That they have done things that they feel totally disqualify themselves from having a relationship with God. That they have zero self-righteousness and feel like they are forever distant from God. There isn't anything they can do because they've already screwed up so much or it's too late. But if we're honest, this too is a self-righteous attitude. See, as long as anyone believes that their standing with God has anything to do with them, then of course you're never going to feel like you can have a relationship with him. You see, this was Matthew's story and his understanding at the time. An understanding that was radically morphed and flipped, flipped upside down by Jesus through his, his teachings. Which Je- with Matthew, got to see Jesus and his teachings firsthand. You see, Matthew understood that because Jesus came to earth and because of his sinless night, life and sacrificial death, that now mankind had access to God in a way that they'd never had before. But not because of anything they had or hadn't done. Because it's not about them. It was about what Jesus had done on their behalf. This was a brand new way of thinking about having a relationship with God. So Matthew's inclusion of the, the worst of the worst in Jesus' genealogy was truly on purpose. He didn't want this to be lost on those who were reading his gospel. So we see people like David, who was great, but also a well-known sinner, to show that Jesus was related to sinners. And don't get me wrong, not just sinners, but like gold medal winning sinners who, who disobeyed God and suffered the consequences. You see, these, these are people you wouldn't invite to your Thanksgiving or Christmas dinner because they bring so much drama to the table. So, so here's what I picture. I picture Matthew, right, pondering where to begin in his gospel, where to, where to start, where to start writing, and write this retelling of Jesus' story. And as the Holy Spirit begins to inspire and move in him, as thoughts slowly become apparent and come together, a grin just slowly spreads across his face. He knows exactly where to start with a genealogy that underscores all the different kinds of characters in Jesus' history, the people he was sent to redeem. So this morning, let's begin with the genealogy of Jesus. If you have your, your Bible in hand or on your, on your phone or who knows, in virtual reality these days, let's start Matthew 1.1. It says this, This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and Abraham. Okay, 
So Matthew starts out referencing Abraham and David to show that Jesus has all the right connections, relatively speaking. So it goes on, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Okay, time out. Okay, we all know who Abraham is. We all, Isaac, he's Abraham's son who was almost sacrificed on a mountain by his father. And Jacob is the guy who wrestled with God and had his name changed to Israel. So we're three for three on, on names if you went to Sunday school or if you just have a general understanding of the Bible. But Judah? Like, what's his story? Well, I'm so glad you asked. So we might, we might scratch our heads when trying to recall this Old Testament figure, but Matthew here, he's writing to a primarily Jewish audience, and they would have been tripped up for a different reason than just memory recall. It's because they did. They knew the story of Judah, and they would be absolutely taken aback at his mentioning here. You see, if I asked you this morning to turn to your neighbor or whoever you're watching online with on the couch and give them a synopsis of the life of Judah or even tell them anything about this guy, I imagine it's going to be a pretty short conversation. Now, I've, I asked you to turn to someone and tell them about a certain brother of Judah. You could probably go on for a while or even burst out in song if you grew up in the 90s like me. But let's reread verse 2 to get some context clues to see what exactly Matthew is trying to say to us. Again, Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. So Judah has quite a few brothers, 11 as it turns out. Oof. So if, if, you are, if you add Judah into there, that's 12 brothers total that Jacob and Leah and Rachel, yeah, Jacob had two wives, but that's a whole different story that they got to raise. And these brothers were the foundation of the 12 tribes of Israel. So Matthew's first shock and awe moment here comes right here at two verses in with Judah and his brothers. And if you haven't figured it out, Judah's famous brother, who had his awesome coat of many colors, was Joseph. And you may know him and his story because of a Broadway musical about his life, or for me, the key character in an animated film, Joseph, King of Dreams by DreamWorks. His story is obviously very inspiring, so even if you really don't believe in anything the Bible has to offer, you probably know his story in some way. But, but let's bring it back. Matthew doesn't say Jacob, uh, father of Joseph, right? No. Jacob, the father of Judah. Not many people know the story of Judah. So now as we dive into his story, you probably are going to wonder, if you were God and you had to choose between Joseph and Judah to include in your genealogy, my bet is that you'd skip right past your boy Judah and head to the superstar Joseph. And I don't blame you. Joseph's story is truly awe-inspiring. He's one of those few characters in all the Bible who's faithful to God through everything. He has amazing character throughout his whole life, serving those who treat him unjustly with integrity. And even so, he was thrown into prison and absolutely forgotten. And we know he wasn't perfect because Paul tells us that all have sinned. But Joseph isn't really recorded as much of a sinner. In fact, at the end of the story, he becomes the savior figure. He's a great picture of, or foreshadowing of Jesus. 
This is one guy you would definitely want to name drop in your genealogy to show your awesome roots as the Messiah. But instead, the Holy Spirit prompts Matthew here to include Judah. There's no mention of Joseph. Like, like what? You and I, we would never pick Judah compared to this Jesus lookalike. So why, 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 Matthew? Why did Matthew include him? And I'm sure as you probably have figured out or you can guess, it's to get his point across. The Judas in this world, and spoil, spoiler alert as we go into this, were all him. They're the point of the story. So together this morning, let us learn about, about this apparent loser of a brother. So we start here in Genesis 27. And again, if you have your Bible with, uh, with you, please turn to Genesis 37, 23. And this is what it says. So when Joseph arrived, his brothers ripped off the beautiful robe he was wearing. Okay, so as the student pastor this morning, I feel obligated to teach you a word. And all the students listening this morning are either going to boo me or cringe because they hate when I decode their language to older generations, okay? (laughs) So the word I want to teach you is drip. Oh, yeah, there it was. I heard it. Drip is swag, okay? If you know what swag is, you might understand what drip is. It's like great clothing or like a particularly good outfit. And here's Joseph, and here's, here's another, like, oh, John, he's dripping, okay? <laughs> you see, this new coat his father got him is absolutely stunning. He's obviously the favorite of all the kids, and his bros, they are totally jealous, so as we continue, uh, so as Joseph like saunters towards them in this incredible new drip while they are dripping nothing but sweat from their fields. This is what happens. So it says, so when Joseph arrived, his brothers ripped off the beautiful robe he was wearing. Then they grabbed him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Then just as they were sitting down to eat, They looked up and saw a caravan of camels in the distance coming toward them. It was a group of Ishmaelite traders taking a load of gum, balm, and aromatic resin from Gilead down to Egypt. Okay, I kind of get a sense reading this that these brothers, they might be a bit hangry, right? They obviously had had enough of this little bro Joe, and so they essentially throw him into what is a well, and then they kick back to have lunch. Now, I imagine they can probably hear their privileged brother, like, yelling from the cistern while they're, like, tossing their trash at him, and they're trying to figure out what to do next. So let's, let's figure out what, they, what their plan was. In verse 25, again, it says, Then, just as they were sitting down to eat, they looked up and saw a caravan of camels in the distance coming toward them. It was a group of Ishmaelite traders taking a load of gum, balm, and aromatic resin from Gilead down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, what, what, what will we gain by killing our brother? We'd have to cover up the crime. So instead of hurting him, let's sell him to those Ishmaelite traders. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood, and his brothers agreed. Hey, look at this. It's Judah. We finally caught up with him. We know, we know that guy. So as, as he's munching away on his lunch, he speaks up and comes with a proper business plan. Right? If they kill him, yeah, they don't get much out of it. They, they lose this brother. That's probably super annoying. But they don't get much out of it. But if they sell him, they make some money. Genius. 
Now, while Judah isn't the oldest brother, he seems like he's the leader, right? Or he's, he's at least influential. And so he proposes this plan. Again, it says, um, Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain by killing our brother? We have to cover up the crime. Instead of hurting him, let's just sell him to those Ishmaelite traders. After all, he is our brother. He is our brother, our own flesh and blood. Just a little bit of mercy sneaks out there, if you notice. Just a little bit, but enough to, to get this point across. So here we have our first glimpse of the character of Judah from whom our Savior is descended. Judah says, yeah, let's, let's not kill him. No, let's just sell him into slavery for the rest of his life. Let's profit off of his pain. So cool, man. So, so off Joseph goes, chained to the rest of the slaves as they're walking to Egypt. And as far as Judah and his brothers are concerned, Joseph's gone forever. It's really not like you can back then load up the family in your 13-passenger van and road trip it to Egypt if you change your mind. I mean, that'd have to be a really big camel. But they did win big financially, so there's that. Now, to cover their butts and not get murdered by their father, they have to break his heart. So they take Joseph's robe and dip it in animal blood, and feigning ignorance, they approach their father. And then they do the unimaginable as they hold up the coat and say, "Um, hey, we found this. Isn't this Joseph's? A devastated Jacob responds, a wild animal must have attacked him and torn him to pieces. And the brothers choose to let their father believe the lie, and they decide to live with an ugly, ugly secret. Oof. And while the money is eventually all spent, Judah keeps the secret. When there's an empty chair at the dinner table, when Joseph's birthday cycles around each year, Judah keeps the truth locked away. Because again, he's the leader in this situation. It was his idea. He could have spoken up at any time and changed Joseph's destiny, but he didn't. And if you continue reading through the book of Genesis, you'd find that the story of Joseph is truly the highlight. In fact, it's one of the oldest stories in the Old Testament about any, like, one person. There isn't much mention of Joseph's other brothers, but, but we do get a glimpse into the character of Judah. Inserted right in the middle of Joseph's story, there's one chapter that we get that gives us a little more insight into what kind of person Judah was. And truly, unfortunately, the story goes from bad to creepy to rated R. So here's what happens. Joseph is gone, and Judah decides just to move on with his life. He's still in the family business of shepherding and lives in the same town as his brothers, but eventually he gets married and has a bunch of kids. The first three are boys. So picking up the story in Genesis 38, we're going to start in verse 1 and read through 5. It says, About this time, Judah left home and moved to Adullam, where he stayed with a man named Hira. There he saw a Canaanite woman, the daughter of Shua, and he married her. When he slept with her, she became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and he named the boy Er. Then she became pregnant again and gave birth to another son, and she named him Onan. And when she gave birth to a third son, she named him Shelah. At the time of Shelah's birth, they were living in Kazib. So Judah's first son gets married to a woman named Tamar. 
And so in the course of time, verse 6, Judah arranged for his firstborn son, Er, to marry a young woman named Tamar. But Er was a wicked man in the Lord's sight, so the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Er's brother Onan, Go and marry Tamar, as our law requires of the brother of a man who has died. You must produce an heir for your brother. Now, we don't ever get to know what Er did, but it was evil enough for God to remove him from the equations. And I'm going to spare you the details, and you can read about it on your own later, but the second son also commits evil and dies. Seems like death is all around Judah at this point. And according to the customs of the day, Judah is now responsible for Tamar since she is single and without a husband. She, she needs someone to, to care for her and protect her. She is his daughter-in-law, after all, so he lays out a plan. He says to his one son left, go home to your family and do not marry. When he's old enough, you can marry Shelah. And on the surface, that seems like a pretty decent plan, except there's one problem. And it's not just that this youngest son isn't old enough to marry quite yet, and that Tamar will have to wait, but Judah doesn't ever intend to follow through. He's afraid he's probably going to lose another son. So Tamar here is supposed to like wait for Shelah to grow up. In the meantime, she starts the grieving process. And the awful part is this plan, if this plan fails, she will be an outcast with no one to take care of her. She will have to go through some extreme lengths just to stay alive. Now, if you know this, think of the story of Ruth and Naomi. Right? They only survived because of the grace that, and love that Boaz showed as their redeemer. But Tamar here, she's not as fortunate. So time goes by, and there's no mention of marriage. Years go by, and the agreement isn't honored. She's counting on Judah, but nothing's happening. She's vulnerable, and so she decides to take action. And while the story of the second son earlier in the chapter may be a little much for Sunday morning— this part might also be fairly shocking if it's new to you. So just keep in mind and remember that this is a whole different culture thousands and thousands of years ago. Now Tamar hears that Judah is on his way to town, so she plans to intercept him in a rather unconventional way. We start in verse 14, Genesis uh, 38, 14. It says this, Tamar was aware that Shelah had grown up, but no arrangements had been made for her to come and marry him. So she changed out of her widow's clothing and covered herself with a veil to disguise herself. Then she sat beside the road at the entrance to the village of Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. Judah noticed her and thought she was a prostitute, since she had covered her face. So it seems like at this point that it's been a while since Judah had seen Tamar because he has no idea this is his daughter-in-law. To be fair, she did go out of her way to conceal herself, so she's, she's at the city gate, because this is where the elders and important people would meet, and where Judah would most likely show up. And he sees this veiled woman at the gates and assumes she's a prostitute and decides she wants to hire her. They discuss the deal and determined the payment would be a goat, which I guess was the going rate for that sort of thing 3,000 years ago, a goat. Um, anyways... He, of course, didn't have the goat with him. Who brings a goat with him? So here's what happens next. He says this, I'll send you a young goat for my flock, Judah promised. But what about, but what will you give me to guarantee that you will send the goat, she asked. 
well, what kind of guarantee do you want? He replied. She answered, leave me your identification seal and cord and walking stick you are carrying. So Judah gave them to her. Then he had intercourse with her and she became pregnant. Afterwards, she went back home, took off her veil, and put on her widow's clothing as usual. She asks here for two rather important objects, the signet ring, or as it's translated here, identification seal, was a ring that would be like pressed into wax, essentially providing a signature. So it's a symbol of power. And his rod or staff represents strength. You see, these are two resources, resources that Tamar currently lacks. Her identity would have been defined by her marriage status and her strength would have come from the person protecting her. So Judah here, he's in a bind. He, he promises a goat, but doesn't have a goat. So he hands over these requested items and they part ways. And when he gets home, he confides in a servant saying, hey, I met this temple prostitute and I owe her a goat. You know how things are. Uh, you need to go find her and give her the goat. Okay, take a pause. Side note, you may be asking, John, really? We just watched this cute little video about Christmas and this is where we're going this morning. Like, what's up with that? Well, trust me, this isn't my fault. Blame Matthew. He starts his gospel like that. It's his book. But this all works out. This is a Christmas story after all. It doesn't seem like it right now, but we're getting there. So a servant gets the goat and heads off to settle the debt. But wait a minute. We have a problem. There's no prostitute there. So it picks up. Later, Judah asked his friend Hira, the Adolamite, to take the young goat to the woman and pick up the things he had given her as his guarantee. But Hira couldn't find her. So he asked the men who lived there, where can I find the shrine prostitute who is sitting beside the road at the entrance to Enaim? We've never had a shrine prostitute, they replied. So Hira returned to Judah and told him, I couldn't find her anywhere. And the men of the village claim they've never had a shrine prostitute there. Whoops. So the servant goes back to Judah and is like, so there's no such woman in that town anywhere. I even asked. That had to be like a bit embarrassing, don't you think? And it was. Judah declares that if he went back searching for her, he would be a laughingstock. So he doesn't. He, he just lets it go. But then Judah's second problem comes about in verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has acted like a prostitute, and now, because of this, she's pregnant. Bring her out and let her be burned, Judah demanded. Oh, boy. And Judah, being this obviously level-headed person that he is, wants to burn her. Cool response. But the thing is, is that he gets self-righteous about the whole thing. Is this the same guy who sold his brother into slavery, broke his father's house, heart, and is carrying the secret about his brother this whole time? Is this the same guy who promised his daughter-in-law to take care of her, but never gets around to it? And this is his response? Of course it is. So, he gets community support to take action against Tamar, but Tamar has a backup plan. It says this in verse 25, but as they were taking her out to kill her, she sent this message to her father-in-law. The man who, owes, who owns these things made me pregnant. Look at them closely. Whose seal and cord and walking stick are these? So she sends a servant with the information that will save 
her life from the judgment of a man who swore to protect her in the first place. Once confronted, Judah has the, the whole thing called off. Man, imagine how awkward that, and that had to be. Okay, guys, we're put out the fire. This, this was a whole bad idea. Let's just go home and pretend this whole thing never happened. Right? He's humiliated. But the story continues. Judah recognized them immediately and said, she is more righteous than I am because I didn't arrange for her to marry my son Shelah. And Judah never slept with Tamar again. You see, Judah goes on uh, to name his son Perez. And that name should sound familiar as well because he too is in the genealogy. And it would be understandable if you're thinking, okay, Matthew, <laughs> that's a lot. Okay, and, and you put all this, you put this whole story in there. Now, I, I know there's some like wild stories in the Bible, but this is a bit much, don't you think? A father-in-law sleeping with his daughter-in-law who, prepend, who pretends to be a prostitute and gave birth to their son. Way to air the dirty laundry out in front of everyone. Matthew did leave out a few other names after all, so why not these? Right, this is the kind of family drama that I bet you hope no one discovers. Again, unless it's the point of the story. But that's not the end of Judah's story, after all, and we, we see him a few chapters later. This time, he's in Joseph's neighborhood, and I'll let you read the whole story for yourself, but I'm about to spoil the ending. So Joseph becomes a high-ranking Egyptian official, a little better than we last saw him in a cistern. And so there's a famine throughout the land, and the sons of Israel, they're out of food, and they're desperate for supplies. So Jacob sends his ten older sons to Egypt to purchase purchase grain, which is well supplied thanks to the visions and wise management of Joseph, governor of Egypt. So when they arrive in Egypt, Judah recognizes his brothers, and he, he wants to play, you know, play with them a little and give them a little test. He wants to see if they have changed since they sold him to the highest bidder. And Joseph asks them to bring him their youngest brother, his full-blood bro brother Benjamin, the only other son of Joseph's mother, Rachel. And when they return with Ben, Joseph wants to trade him for the food. And this is the ultimate test. Are they going to abandon another brother? And Judah, the leader, heavy-hearted heavy after years of carrying secrets and lies about Joseph and about Tamar, finally breaks down. And we find this in um, Genesis 44, verses 32 through 33. Judah says, My Lord, I guaranteed to my father that I would take care of the boy. I told him, If I don't bring him back to you, I will bear the blame forever. So please, my Lord, let me stay here as a slave instead of the boy, and let the boy return with his brothers. For how can I return to my father if the boy is not with me? I, could bear to see this I couldn't bear to see this anguish this would cause my father. Joseph here, obviously moved to compassion, finally reveals himself, and they have one big family reunion. You see, this is truly powerful stuff, and I really wish we had enough time to go over it, but I will trust that you're going to read Joseph's story this week. So once again, we ask the question, why did God skip over this Savior son and choose instead the one who is both a liar and a thief? Why was this man who is driven to the brink included in the family line of Jesus? 
Why did God bring his son through the line of a man who was so broken? You see, it's because on that day, with with tears streaming from his eyes as he finally spoke the truth before Joseph, he was the perfect picture of us, of you, and of me. See, that's the point of the story, after all, that, that Jesus came for the broken. Judah was broken. We are broken. And Judah is us. In Judah, we, we can see ourselves guilty with secrets and broken promises. We are, we are sinners in need of a Savior. And for years, Judah didn't budge. He stayed his own course and he refused to look back. And then, when he's finally at the breaking point, he receives mercy from Joseph. Undeserving mercies for things he really never apologized for. You see, God decided not to choose Joseph the righteous, but Judah the unrighteous and self-righteous. This is the one God included in his son's family tree. Right? Doesn't that make you stop and just say, whoa? It's truly remarkable. But that right there is the point of the story of Christmas. It's the whole point of the Messiah, that God sent his son into the world to extend grace to people who didn't deserve it. God's grace is even available to those who have never made themselves available to God. You see, never in the whole Bible is it ever expected that we can save ourselves. We had our chance in the garden through Adam and in Eve, and they screwed up, and we would also screw up if we were in their shoes. We still do. We sin. We go against God's ways even when we know it better. It's a straight-up lie from the enemy when we can believe that we can't be close to God because of things we've done or will ever do. Or maybe it's a different story or a different lie you believe. Maybe it's because you don't feel good enough. You, you don't read your Bible every morning or you don't pray every day, and so you never really feel peace about your relationship with God. But that's not how this works. You see, your hope and my hope has nothing to do with anything we've ever done good or bad, that has everything to do with what has been done for us. And we see this in the genealogy that God, throughout history, has chosen people who have hurt others and caused pain in their own lives. He's chosen messed up, broken, secret-keeping, disobedient, and disappointing people. You see, we are the ones God chooses to work through. And at any time in our lives or any time in theirs, we have access to God. We get standing with God, not because we did anything to earn it, but because of what Jesus did and what he, what he, what he came to do. Isn't that amazing? So when you read the genealogy, you get to read your name in this list because Joseph's name isn't in there. Judah is. Judah, who needed Jesus just as we do. See, Jesus and the gift of grace that he brings to our lives is the point of Christmas. God came into this world to extend grace to people who didn't and don't deserve it. A not-so-well-kept secret about Christian faith, our Christian faith, is this. When you change the narrative from it's what I've done to it's what he has done, things begin to change inside of you. Remember the series we went through earlier this year. If you keep holding on to secrets or building up emotional grief like Judah does, you will never get through it because it's all about your effort. 
But if you allow the grace of God to enter into your life and work through your past, you get to move on. It should never start with like, here's what I bring to table, the table, and here's a promise that backs that up. It should always begin with, here's what has been done for me on behalf of me through someone else. So here's my question this morning. Do you have a secret? Something that's gnawing at you, that burdens your heart on the daily? Do you have that voice in your head that tells you that you can never have peace with God because you don't know how to fix your past? You say to yourself, I, I can't go back and fix it. And even though I try and repay or cover up, I just can't forgive myself. Well, there's good news. Look around here. It's Christmas. God sent his son into the world. God is inviting you into his story, even if you haven't allowed him into yours. God has drawn near to you, even if you've allowed your past to draw you away from him. This is good news. His grace is available to anyone who accepts it. And the best part is that it's unconditional, meaning you don't have to do anything but believe and accept it. You don't have to clean up your past right now. You see, it it begins just like it did 3,500 years ago when Judah was on his knees before Joseph in tears begging for his brother's life. Somehow, Judah accepted the grace that his brother showed him, the grace that he didn't deserve. So today, I want to invite you to simply accept what God has done for you before you even try to do anything about what you've done to yourself or other people. You see, practicing the acceptance of grace It can be difficult, but God helps us in our acceptance. And over time, he will help you and show you the journey of how to forgive yourself and mend those broken relationships. He doesn't want sin to separate you any longer, right? He's so determined to have a relationship with you that he sent his son into the world to fix the problem once and for all for everyone who chooses him. So this is the story of how Judah became the great, 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 times 20, grandfather of Jesus. Now here's something truly amazing. At the end of the story, he's lying, Jacob knows he's about to die. And so he's lying in bed and gathers his son to uh, give them their blessing. Now this is the father who had to face the fact that his sons broke his heart 20 years ago. And he puts his hand on the deceiver we know as Judah And he says this, he says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants, until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor. He says hundreds and hundreds years before there was ever a kingdom of Israel, and way before Jesus, he prophesies that from your descendants, from Judah's descendants, will rise up a king, and everyone will bow before him. Now, of course, we know this king to be King Jesus, the Lion of Judah. Oh, maybe that's where you've heard his name, the Lion of Judah. You see, this is a message I feel is super easy to hear, but I think it's hard to embrace, to truly surrender your pride and self-righteousness before God and accept his grace in your life. You see, the truth is this. Access to God is always through grace, mercy, and forgiveness. All things we're invited to. But the story of Judah is not where the grace story ends. The genealogy goes on. 
See, in verse 3, it says, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amminadab. Amminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Rahab, another woman in a genealogy that shouldn't have any women in it. Do you know the story or the part that Rahab has to play in the story? If not, you'll get the opportunity to learn more about that next week. But I can give you a hint. People like Tamar, people like Judah, people like Matthew, and people like you and me are why Jesus came. This is Christmas. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I don't think we can ever truly understand the power of your grace. That God, as we read about people in the Bible who have done truly atrocious things, as we see the atrocities that happen across our world, God, it's hard to accept that they, they get grace, that the things we've done, the lies we've told, the secrets we kept, that God, that we get grace. But God, I pray that as we practice acceptance of that, that we grow in a deeper relationship with you, especially this Christmas season, as we, as we understand this grace, as we understand love and faith and all the other things that go along with the Christmas season, that God, not only we keep that for ourselves, but we spread it to others. That God, we, you provide a hope that we are told to go and share to people. So God, as we're transformed, as we let grief and other things go with your love. As we practice forgiveness, let us spread your love. Spread the hope and the true meaning of Christmas this year. God, I thank you for this morning. It's in your heavenly name we pray. Amen. Once again, thank you for joining us in worship today. Please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen, or you can call the church during the week. For those of you who make this ministry possible with your financial giving, thank you for your generosity and faithfulness. We know God is doing something in you when you give, but he also does something through you. If you are just checking us out today, please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. That is the responsibility of our Dayspringers. Just enjoy the rest of your day. If you'd like to start giving, we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift. Please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen or mail a check to us at the address you'll find on our website. Also, thank you for liking and sharing and following Dayspring on whatever platform you are on. It means a lot to me when you pass on the good news of Jesus to your friends and family. Until next week, may you experience God's favor and blessing in your life.